class. Uh, I think this is the eighth one of these I've done as a pastor. Uh, I did a lot of them in church planting because you have to uh, train your first elders and deacons often. And uh, just to give you a heads up, uh, what we're going to do tonight is pretty much orientation for the first part, and in the second part, we'll talk a little bit about leadership. And so for orientation, you have the handout. I'm just going to touch on some of this. We have something called the Book of Church Order in the PCA, which is a little blue notebook that uh, basically explains how the church is to do things decently and in order. That is the Presbyterian way. That is our motto. Everything should be done decently and in order. And uh, being a child of the 60s, uh, I just sort of bowed my back against that the first time I heard it. But the older I get, the smarter it is. Uh, if everybody can consistently follow uh, the instructions in that book, it saves you a world of um, misunderstanding, confusion. It helps with organization. So. I've grown to be a lover of it, although a bunch of Southern lawyers wrote it. Uh, that's what I, I said, because I had the original guys that wrote it in seminary. I had a class on the Book of Church Order. It was fascinating, it was good. But anyway, uh, the Book of Church Order establishes guidelines, and we're not particularizing a church, we're already a church, including the ordination of elders and deacons. And so what we're doing is following the Book of Church Order in the process of uh, training and uh, we did it with nominations, we do it with uh, the election which will be upcoming in July. So to begin with the first part of it, why do we elect officers? Well, that has to do with how the church is led. And we know that the church is the body of Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, Verses 9 and 10, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building, according to the grace of God which was given me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, another is building upon it, but let each man be careful how he builds upon it. And then of course the book of Ephesians gives instructions on how the church is led. Verses uh, 11 through 13 of chapter 4, God's plan for leadership is revealed in scripture. He launched the church by giving certain individuals specific gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And the purpose of giving these gifts is so that they could do all the work of the ministry and you could pay them and they would be happy, right? No, not at all. That is not what Ephesians 4 says. It says that my job is to equip you to do the work of the ministry. In other words, when I first came out here to Las Vegas to plant this church, uh, man, that, that was scary. It felt like a parachute drop. I was so far from uh, civilization as I knew it, sort of in the middle of nowhere. There weren't too many Presbyterians around here that I knew of. And it was a little bit intimidating, but I had a visit from a wise old pastor who just happened to be sort of a shepherd for church planters and he called me one day, said he was in town, would like to get together for lunch, and we did. Long story short, he looked at me and he said, I want to give you a bit of advice. He said, you're going to feel pressure to get people right away because you don't have very many people. You have a core group of just a few people. He said, and what you're going to be tempted to do is all that there is within you to find and gather people. We actually did telemarketing to start the church. If you could believe that, we did it. There was a Nielsen rating service here and they had just finished their job and I hired them and we did like 30,000 dial-ups. We sent out 3,500 pieces of mail, seven pieces of mail, had the church grand opening on uh, Palm Sunday and we had about 380 people come to the first service. So we found people. But what this man looked at me and said is, don't get caught up in that. He said, invest in the people you have. Train, pour your life into the people that you have. He said, because leadership base has to expand in order for you to reach people. 
And so it sounded backwards to me in all of my training, but it made a lot of sense. The older I got, the more I thought of it, and I did follow his advice, and it was effective. Uh, and so Paul, uh, writing to Titus in chapter 1 and verse 5, said, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you might set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. And so the early uh, church, uh, in the epistles, it, it became more technical that they needed more organization. They had a lot of organism, but eventually you have to have organization or you'll have chaos. And so as churches were established in the faith and more than one person became qualified, elders were appointed or elected in other places in the New Testament to continue the pastor teaching ministry in each local church. To the elders was given the ultimate responsibility for the oversight of that particular church body and the shepherding of its members. And so elders comes from the Greek word presbyteros. What does that sound like? Presbyterian, right? Presbyteros is a Greek word that is translated as elder. And what it means is our church is uh, overseen uh, and the authority of the church is uh, the session or the elders. They rule. It's a ruling body. And so uh, elders were appointed in the wake of the work of the Apostle Paul to provide the continuing pastoral teaching care in each local church. And in the PCA, we make a distinction between what are called ruling elders and teaching elders. I'm a teaching elder. Ed Kelly is a ruling elder. And so there's a distinction here, and that distinction is important to remember. In 1 Timothy 5, it says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those, whose work, those who work hard at preaching and teaching. I get a paycheck, Ed does not. <laughs> now, why do we do it that way? Well, because of 1 Timothy. It's an it's a honor and a respect. And I've always said it just overwhelms me that I, I get paid to do what I love to do more than anything in life. It's such a joy. But that's uh, as a result of the New Testament. The second um, thing that I wanted you to see is in the book of Hebrews, there is, I'm trying to do this without my Bible because I don't have enough room up here. Uh, here it is, Hebrews 13, 17, which says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls. As those who will give an account, let them do this with joy, not grief, for this would not be profitable for you. And so uh, that is the office of elder. There's also the office of deacon, which is primarily a serving body, not a ruling body. Uh, that uh, actually came into being in Acts chapter 6 as a result of uh, the church growing dynamically in the 12, that is, the apostles summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables, but select from among you brothers seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we may put in charge of this task. And so we know from 1 Timothy 3, that it became necessary, men were chosen as deacons to serve the church, particularly in the area of ministry that would distract the elders, pastors, and other leaders from performing their basic responsibility to teach the word and equip Christians for service. Elders are not superior to deacons. We have a different responsibility. We have a different calling. Elders are not necessarily more spiritual than deacons. It's just a different calling and a different task and role to play in the church, and it's honorable in every way. And so SMPC recognizes the biblical pattern for a plurality of godly leadership under the oversight and watch care of the elders and the supportive leadership of the deacons. And so those work in tandem. There are also, I believe, the passage in 1 Timothy 3, and I'm not getting into it, uh, where some people say it addresses the wives of deacons. I believe that that's deaconess. I, I, I can't see any reason in my exegesis of the passage why it was translated wives. There's a perfectly good word for that. Uh, but we don't do that in the PCA. We don't do it as an ordained office. But I do believe 
that women have a particular role to play in both supporting the diaconate and the uh, elders in ministry, and that's what our women's council fulfills in this particular church at this time. And so while it is not a formal office, it still is a major responsibility that helps with ministry. Now, I don't want to get into defending that. I don't have time to do it. Uh, I used to teach a membership class uh, when I was first here years ago, and uh, it would come up in every class. How come you only ordain men to the office of elder or deacon? And I see men doing everything here, but why do you not ordain women? And people would leave the church over that. Just get mad and leave and call me names and what have you. Uh, and so in the back of our membership manual, there is a description as to why we do that. There is an article. And if you have a membership manual and you want to know why we don't, that's why we don't. It's the only, we believe that there's only that limitation in two places, the home and the church. Uh, spiritual leadership in the church is supposed to be by male uh, and in the home is supposed to be by the husband. And those are uh, our positions on that. So that's kind of what we're doing, why we're electing officers, because we need them. Uh, so it's important to uh, remember that this is critical. This is a very important time in the life of this church because of the fact that we experience such transition here. So many people move here, stay a couple of years and go. And that's because of job or for calling. And most people don't wake up one morning and go, oh, I think I'll go live in Las Vegas because it's a great Christian community. No, they don't do that. <laughs> people like the Bible Belt and all of that for that. I call them the elder brother types. They like to be there. They don't want to be where the prodigals are, which is here. Uh, and there are plenty of prodigals here. But by virtue of that, I understand that's the nature of the case. We lost 20 families last year. 20 families last year and you can hardly tell it by looking at our worship service God keeps sending us more people but because of that we really have to work hard to establish our leadership base uh, to continue to have elders and deacons where we can function as a full orbed church now where are we we've made nominations in March you've been contacted if you were nominated the training will be from April 19th to July 5th, unless I add one more class, which I'm debating. Uh, the congregation, after these uh, nominees are examined and approved by session, they will be put on a ballot, and the congregation will determine who becomes, by a simple majority, who becomes the next elders and deacons. So it is a process. It's not something you do overnight. It's, it's a process. We have a little different process if you served as an elder or a deacon in another PCA church, then we are able to uh, maybe skip a couple of the things that we would require of you. We try to do it case by case basis, and so that's what we're doing. Okay, so let's talk about officers elected. I've already mentioned this a little bit. What are the duties of the elders? Elders are called a session because they are a church court. And so when we meet, it is the court in session. And that's why we're called a session. Elders are to shepherd the flock, to nurture it, uh, to feed it, to disciple, to pray, to provide oversight, to teach. Um, we also do uh, member interviews and admission and dismissal from the church and training and examining of new officers and pastoral oversight through community groups and the final court of appeal, unless you want to go to Presbytery and ultimately to the General Assembly, on doctrinal and discipline issues and causes in the local church. Okay? So it is a ruling body. That's our job as elders. Deacons, on the other hand, uh, are involved in mercy ministries, and their primary calling is service. Now, you can't be a good elder unless you're a servant. Granted, but the primary focus of the diaconate, the very word deacon means to serve uh, the needs of others. So they meet felt needs through deeds. We preach the gospel in word. 
the diaconate preaches the gospel in deeds. Uh, and so um, they do outreach, they're involved in evangelism and specific disbursing financial and material aid, crisis intervention, sickness and death and other losses in support of programs and ministries within the church. And more and more we are in the process of uh, having the deacons uh, deal with, excuse me, the budget and uh, disbursement of those things. We had a time in which that was changed and now we're changing back. And I think it's much more healthy the way we're starting to do it. So this is all, as I said, orientation. This is not what you came here for, I bet, but it's necessary. You need to hear this uh, in considering these things. Now qualifications for both offices are in 1 Timothy 3, and you have in your packet uh, a listing of those qualifications, but I'm going to do it a little bit different way because I think this is a, a, a good summary or conflation of list of necessary qualities that we look for in all church leaders. Uh, unless they qualify in this way, I would not vote for them. I would not. Now, advanced maturity of Christian character. Uh, uh, an elder or deacon should have self-management disciplines. That is basic fundamental life skills. I worked as a juvenile probation officer in Dallas, Texas for four or five years. And so one of the things that I often had to do with some of the delinquents is I was there during the time of day when they usually showered and went to bed. You would not, uh, maybe you wouldn't be surprised, but you might be surprised how many of those kids did not know how to take a shower did not know how to brush their teeth, did not know any hygiene. Uh, I mean, some of them, you could smell them from, yeah. And, and they just were never taught. They didn't have basic life skills. They didn't understand. And so I would have to go in, stand in the door of the shower, tell them how to take a shower, how to use soap, how to wash their hair, how to, uh, and then I would have to show them how to brush their teeth and, you know, just fundamental stuff like that. Basic life skills, or these are sort of the basic life skills, skills that we look for out of leadership. Uh, getting work done on time, just responsibility. Integrity, not being controlled by outside circumstances. Having a core set of values that keeps you from being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Keeping commitments, consistent, honest, Integrity, those are issues that we look for in leadership. Uh, interpersonal discipline, sensitive to other people, we winsome and at ease in confrontation. But if you enjoy confrontation, I don't want you as my leader. I don't like anybody who enjoys confrontation <laughs> to be a leader. You should not enjoy confrontation. You should loathe confrontation. But we do it, don't we, Ed? It's not a pleasant thing. It's a hard thing. We do it with one another. And uh, it's just part of the responsibility, especially being an elder and in deacons too, because you have to deal with the public sometimes and people seeking needs to be met. And sometimes they're a scam. I fell for the biggest scam ever in the history of the PCA, I think. When I first moved out here, I didn't have elders or deacons. So somebody called me from a downtown hotel and said, I'm stuck here in Las Vegas and I'm out of money and my mom and dad are in a PCA church up in British, or Van, not, it wasn't Vancouver, it was Prince Edward Island. And they said, uh, our pastor will wire you the money if you'll just help us get on a bus or whatever. So I drove down to the hotel, walked them to the bus station, paid for their bus pass, got home, the phone rang, picked it up, Somebody from Mission to North America said, there's a scam going on among <laughs> church plants, and they described it, and I fell for it. I had egg all over my face. Now, I didn't care that people got help that way, but that was just a, a stark reminder of some of the things you have to deal with. You know, people are what they are, and sometimes you have to deal with that kind of stuff. But good listener, are you a good listener? Uh, are you in conversation, thinking of the next thing you can say rather than listening to what has been said. 
I don't think my wife's ever told me more than 6,000 times that I don't listen. <laughs> Maybe not more than 6,000, but she has told me that. But now, since we've gotten older, I get to tell her, you didn't listen. She never believes it, by the way. She has never conceded <laughs> that she doesn't listen. Listening means more than just hearing what is said. It is active listening. It is inter it's, it's just interpersonal skills. <laughs> yeah, uh, I hear you on that. Yeah. Uh, patient, teachable, a teachable person. What's a teachable person? It's a person who has figured out they don't know everything. And uh, boy, uh, that's, that's a, that day to dawn on some people is a big day, that they don't know everything. And uh, I suppose my motto regarding that is, the more you learn, the greater the horizon of your ignorance expands. If you really know stuff, you know you don't know stuff. And uh, that's just a qualification in my mind of being patient, uh, being teachable, being warm, and not controlling. Uh, who are the biggest control freaks in the New Testament? Pharisees. Yeah, they were. I know, I used to be one of them. And... Uh, you not only want to control your life, but you want to control everybody else's life in the church by telling them the convictions they should have. <coughs> and uh, you're a sin detector. Uh, gospel confidence. To me, this is huge. You know what I, how I feel about the gospel. I've made that clear. It's not in a closet. A gracious and an affirming spirit, not irritable, repenting in joy, uh, a repenting in joy spirit, not defensive, a grateful spirit, even in trouble, not self-pitying. And so gospel confidence is incredibly important. There is a certain humility and boldness that comes from a deeper understanding of the gospel. Uh, the more you grow in your understanding of the gospel and it begins to seep into the core of your being, and start transforming you motivationally in every other way, especially the basic motivations of the heart. As the gospel does that, it, at first it just humbles you uh, because the more you see Jesus and how much he loves you and what he did for you, the more you see your sin. And the more you see your sin, the more you see how much Jesus loves you. And that just keeps happening over and over as we repent. And the good thing about that is it humbles us. Uh, I, I remember my wife would often say things to me like this. I would, uh, we'd go to a party or something and some guy would meet at the party and I'd come over and I'd stand by her and she said, well, I saw you talking to the guy. I said, I don't like that guy. And she said, why? I said, I just don't like him. I don't know what it is. It's just uh, I don't want to talk to him anymore. I don't like him. She said, well, I talked to him 30 minutes ago and he reminded me of you. If you spot it, you got it, man. And that was always so humbling to me. But the gospel has helped me with that. Uh, when I'm truly understanding my sin at a certain level, Luther said if you ever saw all your sin at once, you would die. And he's right. God only gives us little flashes here and there. But the good uh, thing about all of that is it's incredibly humbling and incredibly powerful in shaping us, uh, and so there's a humility, but there's also a boldness at the same time. Gospel sort of has a way of delivering us from our fears. Once you don't need the approval of other people, it's easier to talk to them about your faith. If you're an approval junkie, hand out in the back. Uh, if you're an approval junkie like that, where you just can't stand not for people to like you, uh, then it'd be very hard for you to ever share your faith. But the more confident you are in the gospel and its security that it gives you, the easier it is to talk to people because you're not having a conversation with them about what, how good they need to be. You can talk to them right at right where you are and right where they are. I told a guy the other day, uh, Monday at the gym, he was talking to me and 
the issue of the gospel came up. And he said, oh, you're a preacher, you're religious. I know, you know you're going to heaven. I said, no, I don't. I said, not because I'm a preacher. I said, that my best sermon would send me to hell. He looked at me like, what did you say? And then I said to him, I gotta quit telling stories, so. But, uh, and then I said to him, there's no difference between you and me. There's only one difference. And that is, Jesus has saved me by his grace. And I said, I am not worthy of it, uh, but he did everything necessary to accomplish my salvation and he gives it to me freely and I receive it as I you know, turn away from my sin and my life and rely completely upon him. And I said, that's the only difference between you and me. I said, I'm not any better than you are as a human being or a person. You know, uh, somebody told me, if you're not the worst person you know, you probably don't get the gospel very well yet. Uh, uh, have you ever been around people who are just so unself-aware? <laughs> just, you know, it's just like, seem to meet more of them. Uh, as life goes on. All right, spiritual disciplines. We encourage people to because God is your father and because he enjoys and delights in you and likes spending time with you and has done everything necessary for you to spend time with him, then your use of the means of grace, you should be highly motivated to spend time in prayer, Bible study, uh, learning how to deal with temptations, uh, learning to deal with besetting sins, all of these things which are highly important. And so that's what uh, some of the uh, qualifications. Page two, and we're going to zip through this pretty quick. Ministry, leadership, gifts, and skills. Uh, one of the first things that we like to see in leadership is the ability to evangelize. And there are just simple ways that you can learn how to do that. You can be trained. I think I told you before, Jack Miller, who was a great influence on me, taught at Westminster Seminary a course on evangelism. He said he saw more people saved in that class than anywhere else in his ministry. And I said, why or how? And he said, because I would have them on the first day pair up and told them to lead each other to Christ through a gospel presentation. These are seminary students. And he said 75% of them could not do it. Could not share the gospel with another person. What? So he said it was glorious to see seminary students getting saved. Because they'll really make better pastors if they're saved. <laughs> yeah. Lot better pastors. He also had a high conversion rate among homosexuals or gay people. And you know how he would uh, work with them? He would give them Luther's pre preface to the Galatians about righteousness and just have them read it and they would come back and say, I've never heard anything like that in my life. I've never seen anything like that in my life. And he said he saw, I think he said somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 people converted just through reading Luther's preface to the Galatians. And I, I didn't get a chance to ask him why he thought that appealed to that person. Uh, but he, I think he said it had something to do with perfectionism or I don't know. But it was uh, fascinating to hear that. Uh, encouraging growth and discipling, nurturing the body, group leadership ability, counseling wisdom. These are things that are needed in leaders in the church. Sometimes I think the word elder also means older. I don't think it exclusively means that. I think some people are old souls in a younger body, but uh, for the most part, if you've lived life and been through a lot of stuff. Uh, committed to the vision of Spring Meadows, that is a commitment to the city of Las Vegas, rather than bashing it as uh, Sodom and Gomorrah uh, and... Uh, you know, there's two places I've been to plant church, here in New Orleans. Neither one of them have great reputation. Do they? What does that tell you about me? Nothing. All right. Uh, committed to SMPC's vision, to cell group model. What we're trying to do with community groups is it's also to build community in the church, but we're trying to decentralize pastoral care and allow 
our elders and all of them to, to do pastoral care. I brought a, uh, I think I brought it. Yeah, a really thick packet here of our, uh, thanks Paul, of uh, shepherding ministry plan that we have for the elders here. It comes out of Whitmer's book, Tim Whitmer. But this is what our elders do. They committed to follow this plan. And so we've divided up the families and your elder is responsible to check up on you. And it's, it's all in a, in a very good thing, a very good ministry tool to help us accomplish uh, what we need there. All right. Um, commitment to theological balance. Uh, I think uh, with that, uh, we're all for being orthodox, but we, we don't want dead orthodoxy. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book on revival and that he wrote years ago talks a lot about dead orthodoxy. That is, you're theologically correct, but lacking the life of the Spirit. There's no love. There's heterodoxy, which is heresy and being uh, another uh, rather than the, the gospel. But we want live orthodoxy. That's what we're looking for in, in the church, live orthodoxy. Um, and so grace and truth should be balanced. Commitment to nurture and evangelism, balance. Outward face toward the community. Just a quick word on uh, bounded and center set churches. Now, in the Reformed tradition and community, there is this tendency because we love our Reformed theology, and I put myself in that category, but what we tend to do is we take our distinctives in being Reformed, some of them are pretty hard to take, first time heard. I mean, did any of you jump up and down the first time you heard the doctrine of election? I did. I had a couple of objections. But we push those to the edges of the church to the boundaries between us and the community. And in order to get into our church, you gotta cross those boundaries before you can get in. A centered set church is the boundaries are not pushed out. People are invited in and if they stay and they hang around, more and more they'll be drawn toward our distinctives that way. And so while we are I told someone one time, and I think it's important to say, I did not come to Las Vegas or go to New Orleans to plant a Reformed church. What I did was go to plant a church in a Reformed way. Being Reformed is a means to an end. It is not an end in itself. And so while you cut me, I bleed Reformed, it is not my identity. My identity is being in Christ. And so that's a particular choice we've made I think it's helpful. Now, what are the goals of this training that we're going to be doing here? What is it going to do for you? Well, we hope it will create some sense of esprit de corps, a community of people who love, honor, and encourage one another, but to test calling to the specific office. In other words, what I've discovered is that people who've been nominated, that's why I invite people who've been nominated, they don't know whether they want to serve, maybe they're kind of leaning toward a no, to go through the process because the process will reveal to you where you are and whether or not you're ready to do it, whether or not you're qualified. More often than not, people who I've looked at and said, I don't think they're ready yet, it's almost to a man will come to me and say, I don't think I'm ready yet. And I'll say, okay. I, say, I, I said, but don't quit. You know, you grow and mature. If this is not the last time we're ever going to elect leaders. You've been through the training. You won't have to do that again. But it just the, you have to trust the process. I found that out in general in Presbyterianism. We have a lot of processes. I don't, what is the plural processes? Processes. Is that what it is? Yeah, that's what I say. Anyway, <laughs> that's what I thought. But you just have to trust those things to filter out when you say that, Ed, when you agree with me and I, I know you with your clerk of sessions, you're a process man. But that, that's very important to do, and even in church discipline and other issues that we deal with, is it is a process. And so to prepare people for service in the church and the PCA, 
to assist in understanding the system of doctrine taught in the Westminster Confession of Faith, to orient to Presbyterianism in the PCA Book of Church Order, which you will be getting a copy of eventually. I don't want to overwhelm you. To challenge each one to become a more fully devoted follower of Jesus. Now, though class content varies in training for different offices, a 12-week design for elder and diaconate training will include the following topics with appropriate reading assignments. Those will be given to you. And I want you to watch John Gerstner on the Westminster Confession of Faith. There are 24 episodes on YouTube. They're 30 minutes long. Watch two a week. And it won't be painful. <laughs> He's very engaging. I don't know if you've ever... He actually mentored R.C. Sproul. So if you like R.C., you'll see where R.C. gets some of his quirks. Is from John Gerstner. Uh, Woody Woods, who used to be an elder in this church... Uh, years ago, uh, when I was here the first time and then stayed while I was gone, Woody used to drive him around up in Pennsylvania. Uh, he, he was a seminary professor at uh, the Pittsburgh Theological. Yeah, Pittsburgh Theological. And he used to drive him around, and he said he would sit in the back of a van with a table and chair and type the whole time he was driving. And uh, I said, Woody Woods, uh, I said, if you tell me you knew George Whitfield, we got a problem. Because everybody else I bring up, you know in the Reformed faith that I know of. But anyway, long time ago. Now, that's what I want you to do. And, you know, get a phone app. Listen to it in the car. Watch it at home if you want the picture. But, I mean, that's an hour. You can do that. That way, I want you to at least cover the Westminster Confession. Uh, then, uh, we will have uh, these following topics, which tonight's leadership and or orientation, we're about to get to the leadership. Uh, next week will be the Holy Scriptures. I will teach that one. The next week will be the attributes of God. Sorry, it's in the wrong order. Flip Trinity and attributes of God. Mark Anderson will teach those two classes. You say, why are you having Mark Anderson do that? Because he spent about 30 years of his life studying it, and I haven't heard too many people do it better. Maybe never anybody do it better than he does it. And you, I have to tell the story on Mark. Mark was in my first leadership training class here in Las Vegas in 1990. He came to the first class. He sat there like a truck had hit him. I think we did it on the decree, the eternal decrees of God or something. And he went home and told Terry, his wife, I think we're in a cult. <laughs> he said, I don't, I don't get this. I think we're in a cult. And, uh, well, he doesn't think that anymore, obviously. But uh, his first impression was that. So uh, I thought that was sweet in a way. That he doesn't feel that way anymore. But his stuff on the attributes of God is just excellent, and the Trinity as well. Then I will be out of town on the 17th, going to my grandson's graduation, so Dan Phillips will teach covenant theology. And by the way, Dan Phillips is an excellent teacher. As you know, Dan Phillips went to seminary at Westminster Seminary in Escondido uh, and got a master's in theology. He didn't get an MDiv because he didn't take the languages, but he got everything else I got. And he's an excellent teacher, and he's really excellent on covenant theology. And he's a good man overall, I'll tell you that. I think Dan and I, we didn't really see eye to eye in the beginning when he came around because he was an OPC guy. And OPC guys don't like PCA guys, usually. <laughs> they, they think we're sellouts, you know. They think, uh, so we call them the only Presbyterian church. <laughs> And they call us, I won't even say. But they do not call us nice names. And then everybody else calls the EPC Church, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, the Everybody Presbyterian Church. A little loosey-goosey in places. That's all intramural, but Dan, Dan's a good man. Looking forward to it. I'm going to do something on being reformed, which will probably be something along the line of a reformed world and life view with all of the presuppositions of being reformed plugged in as a way of understanding how to be reformed. Let me just give you a quick hit on that. 
Uh, my Reformed Baptist friends like the title Reformed in their name. But most of them, not saying all of them, and there's been some developments, and I'll try to be nice about this. But just because you have all the tulips petals on your tulip, just because you believe in the doctrines of grace, that's one small iota of being reformed. That's soteriology. But then you've got what? The whole other ologies of systematic theology, and there is a reformed view on everything. Everything. The whole of life in the world. And so it's different. It's one of my pet peeves, but I don't say nothing to my Reformed Baptist friends because they're on a good road. They just need to keep moving. <laughs> don't stop. I used to be one of them. I got real turned off to them because I was in Memphis, Tennessee, and I was pastoring a Southern Baptist church. And they had a meeting, and I had been introduced to the doctrines of grace. And I said to myself, I don't know anybody in my church that believes this. I wonder if there's anybody else in the city of Memphis that believes this. And so I found this little group of Reformed Baptist pastors, and I went and had lunch with them. Well, two of them had graduated from where I eventually went to seminary, Reformed Theological Seminary, but between them speaking in German and Greek, I just thought, these are the biggest nerds I've ever been around in my life. I got nothing in common with these people. And so I went to one meeting. I was a lost boy, but there you go. Uh, doctrines of grace, justification, sanctification, doctrine of the church, or church government, sacrament, eschatology, I may add the uh, person and work of Christ. I don't know if Mark's going to hit on that in the Trinity. If he doesn't, I'll do something in addition to that because I think that's very important. These are just topics that are sort of reform distinctives that make us what we are from uh, just broad evangelicalism. And so I will do that. Excuse me. It's one of my favorite things I get to do in the ministry. Any questions on that? All right, let's talk about a leader. We've got... Just a few minutes. It was Aristotle. You know him. <laughs> Who? No, Aristotle. Uh, I had a friend one time that was, yeah, I hear you. I had a friend one time that said he got an email from Martin Luther today. <laughs> And I said, do you realize that you just said that? Uh, leaders. Uh, what a critical issue in the church. Uh, leadership and leadership development. Um, I asked my dad one time, who's a very astute observer of humanity. I said, uh, Dad, how do you know if you're a leader? And he said, turn around. If there ain't nobody following, you ain't no leader. <laughs> but a leader... <laughs> A leader is an influencer. And what I want you to do is open your Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And there are three things that I think constitute a full-orbed understanding of leadership. And it is logos, pathos, and ethos. And I'm stealing from Aristotle, his book Rhetoric on Being Persuasive. And he talked about how you would get people to listen to you. And if you have lagos, that would mean that you have a compelling case to make, that what you're saying is backed up and supported, that you know your stuff, okay? That's just a fundamental way to say it. Lagos is knowing your stuff. Uh, it's being competent. It's being uh, well-prepared and all of that. But if you have lagos and you don't have pathos or ethos, nobody's going to listen to What's pathos? What words do we get from pathos? Sympathy, empathy, pathetic. <laughs> yeah, that's a pathos. And what pathos is, it's basically relational skills. It's basically, what was it Bill Clinton used to say? I feel your pain. Uh, but it's, it's better than that, please. It's better than that. But it's, it's the ability to connect with people. It's the ability to have empathy, to have compassion, to be able to reach out. And, uh, you know, the fundamental thing, I think I, I think I said it last Sunday, people don't care how much you know till they know how much you care. And so there's a caring connection there. You may not even know what you're talking about, but if you got that, some people will listen to you. Some people will hang around you if you have that because they're so hungry 
for human connection. And the third one is ethos, which we get our word what from? Ethics. It's integrity. It's uh, moral, um, having morality. It's uh, a a person who is uh, trustworthy. They're able to trust you. For example, um, when a speaker is speaking to you, it's good to have all three of these, logos, pathos, and ethos, because if you don't have ethos, then you're only manipulating people. You're just trying to impress people. You're, it's all about you, it's all about your presentation. It's all about people applauding you, thinking highly of you, thinking well of you, uh, rewarding you because you're such a great speaker. Or if you, but if you don't have ethos, People won't listen to you very long because they won't trust what you're saying. You go to a doctor and he doesn't have ethics, how long are you going to go to that doctor? Not long, I hope. And so what we're talking about here, and the Apostle Paul is a model of all three of these, and we see it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And so what I want to do for the next few minutes is talk about this, not a long time, but at least for you, because we're talking about leadership. Um, Jerry Bridges came to uh, do a conference in my church in Louisiana. And he's, a, he's a good guy and a great speaker, and I enjoyed him. He's dead now. He's in heaven. But he was a big, uh, he spoke a lot at Ligonier events. Anybody here heard of Jerry Bridges? Oh, okay. Yeah. He, he was a big navigator, uh, a parachurch ministry. And uh, just, I've really enjoyed him, really enjoyed his time at the church. So he and I went out to dinner one night, and he started asking me questions about the church. And uh, he was never one to uh, be vague. He was to the point. And so he said, well, here you are in Louisiana. He said, the hardest thing you're going to face here in planting a church here is finding men who are qualified to be leaders. And I thought about it in a minute. I thought, well, there's more Catholics than there are people here. That's the number one the number one challenge is just everybody's Roman Catholic. The whole rhythm of life is Catholic. I mean, they have mass for dogs, for boats, uh, for, I mean, they have a, just everything. They have festivals all of the time. There's always food and drink and whatever. It's the most partying, alcohol, soap culture I've ever lived in. And here I am trying to plant a PCA church. And a classmate of mine from seminary had pastored an independent church there. And when he heard I was going, he called me up and said, you'll never get a Presbyterian church there. I said, well, thanks a lot. I'm sure I can count on your prayers. But I hate to tell you, but he was close to right. It was very difficult to find. And the leaders I would train and develop seemed to all move away. And the guys that I was working with were just, they were good men, but they didn't have the giftedness, I think, that was needed in a church plant to get it going. Man, you're so dependent on other people to help in that. And that was a challenge. So leadership has become a huge issue for me, um, especially developing it in a church. So let me read, what did I say? First Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, and we'll... For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. I'm seeing it. I'm already seeing logos, which is gospel. I'm already seeing ethics, because he wasn't trying to please men, but please God. For we never came with words of flattery. There's ethics again, (laughs) as you know. Nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, 
whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother. There it is. There's the pathos. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Could there be a bigger pathos? Looking at it through these lenses, there's a lot of different ways you could look at this passage, but I just see these qualities in the Apostle Paul as sort of the uh, architectonic leader uh, in the New Testament era, uh, outside of Jesus Christ, what a what a powerful. So he said, so being, uh, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God also how holy, righteous, and blameless was our conduct toward your, you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of, the gospel, of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And I'm going to stop there. But I see in this passage those three things that uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying Aristotle was divinely inspired at all. It's a common grace insight. Broken clocks right twice a day, right? And a blind pig fan finds an acorn every once in a while. So Aristotle got a couple of things right because of common grace, which we may have to have a lecture on. No. <laughs> but Paul possessed these things. And uh, you can see it when he speaks of the word. Paul was a guy who was just essentially addicted to the gospel. He was set apart for it. He's passionate about it. And I was doing some reading today on that particular issue. And uh, it was in a book by Jack Miller called Outgrowing the Ingrown Church. And he's talking about pace setting leadership. And he said, the gospel must do more than sit on the surface of our minds if it's going to have the kind of control of our character and emotions. In other words, you can't have pathos and ethos without gospel reality. We must get into the depths of our souls until it becomes the dominant power in our lives. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said this gospel dominance was the sole explanation of his own life and ministry. He said, personally, to me, the gospel is something more than a matter of faith. It has so mingled with my being as to be a part of my consciousness, an integral part of my mind, never to be removed from me. In the same lecture, he adds vital color to this gospel conscience life. This is from All Around Ministry. Brothers, I beseech you to keep to the old gospel and let your souls be filled with it. And then may you be set on fire with it. When the wick is saturated, let the flame be applied. Fire from heaven is still the necessity of this age. They call it go, and there's nothing which goes like it. For when the fire once starts upon a vast prairie or forest, all that is dry and withered must disappear before its terrible advance. May God himself, who is a consuming fire, ever burn in you as in the bush at Horeb. That is the burning bush in Exodus 3. All other things being equal, that man will do the most who has the most divine fire that comes from the gospel. That subtle, mysterious element called fire, who knows what it is? It's a force, inconceivably mighty. Perhaps it is the motive force of all forces, for light and heat from the sun and the soul of power. Certainly fire as it is in God, and it comes upon his servants, and its power is omnipotent. The zeal of God's house ate up our master, and it is but a small matter that it should consume his servants as well. I knew I loved Charles Spurgeon for a reason. reason. Uh, I read him early on in my Christian life. He's one of my favorites back in the day. And I had a desire to collect all of the metropolitan volumes of his sermons, the metropolitan pulpit, 
And there must have been like 60 of them. I got one. <laughs> they weren't where I was, and there was no such thing as the internet where you could shop for them. But uh, love that guy. Spurgeon would have us see what it insists upon is that leaders are to be a man whose inner life has been gripped through and through by the message of the cross. But how does Spurgeon get such gospel consciousness? George Whitfield. That's where he got it. That's who he says he got it from, was Whitfield. And so one of the things we're looking for in a leader is a gospel-centeredness, a, a, a gospel-drivenness, uh, because that is the power that will shape that guy into being the kind of person Paul was. I can imagine Paul as a Pharisee was not a real pleasant dude, uh, breathing out threatenings. <laughs> I mean, he was zealously trying to serve God as to what he thought God wanted him to do at that point in his life. But I mean, he was driven uh, by the law and uh, his attempts to win approval of God through that and uh, how he changed. And, and then you read the rest of it. He speaks of being like a mother, like a father, like uh, entering in. And then he mentions all these ethical qualities uh, with his speaking to them and ministering to them and how it wasn't for the approval of men and how it was based upon the word. All of these things we see happening in him. He became highly relational. Uh, I also think of his uh, episode with Mark. You remember uh, where they parted ways in the book of Acts. Later on, though, he invited Mark back. He forgave him. It took a while. He softened. But Paul uh, demonstrates these qualities that I think are so important. I don't want to go too much longer. I want to say a couple of more things about it. He was bold in his understanding and presentation of the gospel. It was uh, amazing. He, uh, by, the word, by the way, the word is logos. I hear so many people say logos. And that just may be one of my pet peeves that I'll die with. But I took Greek four years. And if I ever said logos, my Greek teacher would have chewed me up and spit me out. I had Dr. Kistemach. And that's Dutch for the rest of you that don't know. Dr. Kistemacher, Simon Kistemacher. And what he would do in his Greek classes, this is free. What he would do in a Greek class was he would have you read and translate a verse. It, read from the Greek New Testament, translate it, then he would critique your translation. So, I mean, you're, I mean, you're under the, the hot light. Other people in the class, everybody's hiding. They don't want him calling on them. He calls on me, I read, and he starts the critique. And I said, well, that's why I'm glad I have an English translation. <laughs> he didn't like that. He was, my, <laughs> he was my advisor, and I remember going to see him, and he said, uh, Mr. Posey, you're the one that said, I said, no, that wasn't me, that was the guy beside me. <laughs> but anyway, he said, it's Logos, not Logos, Logos. If it was Logos, it would be L, what looks like a W is a long O, a G, like that, and an Omicron and an S. But it's an Omicron, not an Omega. O, Omega, Omicron, Logos. I hear preachers do. It's okay, though. It's a small thing. But... I just think this passage, do you see what I'm saying? Do you see, understand what Thessalonians, he's saying there about the kind of ministry you had among, what made Paul such an effective minister, what made him such an effective leader in the church was all three of those things came together. And the gospel was the power that brought about uh, those things. And so, back to these three qualities. You can know your stuff, but if people know that you don't care and you have no relationship with them at all, they might listen to you once, but they won't come back. And if you don't have ethos or ethics, but you do have logos and you're pretty good and you have some pathos, people will listen to you a little bit longer, but they'll eventually find out that you're right. 
So in order to be an effective leader, all three of those things got to come about. The ethos are the character qualities that are listed. So is the pathos. The logos is sound theology. Orthodoxy, sound theology. Know what you're talking about. So, let me see if there's any other thing I want to say, and then I'll entertain a question or two. If you have one. Paul was willing to spend and be spent. As they used to tell us in uh, class, you got to be tough. You got to have a skin like a rhinoceros and a heart as tender as a dove. And uh, you've got to encourage and, and comfort. Paul wasn't in it for money, prestige, power, agenda. He wasn't into duplicity, manip manipulation. He wasn't driven by self-interest. He wasn't about money, sex, and power. That's the unholy trinity, by the way, for ministers. Those I know who have fallen, it's been one of those three things. You think about it, or for leaders. In any church, it's money, it's sex, or it's power. You'd be shocked to know how many get gobbled up by that. And mostly because they're not accountable. They don't face people and are not held accountable. And uh, uh, so those are the major temptations. But Paul demonstrated that he was a gospel-driven man. Uh, he was very much a person of live orthodoxy, that he was a person who loved people, who had truth for them as well as compassion. And... He had ethos. He guarded his heart uh, because out of the heart come the issues of life, Proverbs tells us. Okay. <laughs>